Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Jeremy Renner returns to Paramount Plus for a brand new season of the original hit series, Mayor of Kingstown. My job is to create a balance, avoid a war. From executive producer Taylor Sheridan, co-creator of Yellowstone. There's some new players in town, and they brought the flag. And Antoine Fuqua, director of Training Day. I know it's always been a war zone, Mike, but this is next level. The mayor is back in business. Are you warning me? You're going to find out. Mayor of Kingstown. New season streaming June 2nd, exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Welcome to The Late Show. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm your host, Stephen Colbert. And I'm coming to you tonight. I, I come to you this evening following the historic, possibly, maybe, probably, definitely not last January 6th committee hearing. <laughs> Today was the committee's 10th public session. So, we've had exactly as many hearings as we've had Batman movies. <laughs> this is why Adam Kinzinger came dressed in his nipple suit. <laughs> Do the former president throw ketchup against the wall? <laughs> Tell me I am justice. <laughs> I'm Batman. Of course, since it's their 10th hearing, the committee finally filled out the, the punch card. Uh, let's see here. There you go. Uh... Ooh! Ooh, that means the former president gets a free sub. Peanut. <laughs> because, spoiler alert, in a shocking twist ending, the January 6th panel voted to subpoena the former president. And to make sure the former president reads the subpoena, it's being printed on the wrapper of a Gordita Supreme. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's efficient. It's efficient. Supreme. Supreme, of course, that's a subpoena with a dollop of sour cream on top. <laughs> First up, Chairman Benny Thompson laid out the plan for the hearing. Today's proceeding will also be grounded in the facts. But it won't look exactly like all our other hearings. Now, I was hoping that meant they were going to present the hearing in song. <laughs> Turns out, he meant this. We'll also take a step back and look at the evidence in a broader context, providing a summary of key facts we've uncovered. For those of you who've watched our prior hearings, some of this evidence will look familiar. It was a clip show. A look back at the top moments of season one, when the former president tried to strangle a Secret Service agent, Josh Hawley scampered away like a frightened squirrel, and, of course, the very special episode where the committee got married and had a baby. <laughs> Vice Chair Liz Cheney explained what the goals of the hearing were. A key element of this committee's responsibility is to propose reforms to prevent January 6th from ever happening again. I am all for stopping future violence, but I caution against just going from January 5th to January 7th from now on. That is going to cause chaos in the calendar industry. I mean, think of the sexy firemen. Won't someone... Think of the... Thinking of them now. 
California Representative Joe Lofgren made it clear just how prepared the former president was to lie about the election results. A few days before the election, Mr. Trump also consulted with one of his outside advisors, inside activist Tom Fitton, about the strategy for election night. The select committee got this pre-prepared statement from the National Archives. As you can see, the draft statement, which was sent on October 31st, declares, we had an election today, and I won. They were already planning to lie about the election results as early as October 31st. That's the spookiest Halloween ever. <laughs> Trick or treason, it's a boo d'etat. <laughs> now, just, To drive home the premeditated nature of this, Lofgren played a tape of White House advisor Steve Bannon explaining the president's strategy before the election, in fact, also on Halloween. And what Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory. Also, if Trump is, if Trump is losing mm. by 10 or 11 o'clock at night, mm. it's going to be even crazier. No, because he's going to sit right there and say they stole it. I'm I'm directing the attorney general Mm -hmm. to shut down all ballot places in all 50 states. It's going to be no. He's not going out easy. If Biden's winning, Trump is going to do some crazy Usually, usually when you hear someone lay out an evil plan that baldly, James Bond is strapped to a table with a laser pointed at his balls. (laughs) The select committee also played some of the footage from a documentary crew that was following Roger Stone. I really do suspect it would still be up in the air. When that happens, the key thing to do is to claim victory. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. No, we won. you. Sorry, over. We won. You're wrong. you. Actually, Roger, Biden won. you. Sorry, over. We won. You're wrong. you. If it, if it wasn't clear enough that the president's supporters were responsible for the violence, they said it, point blank, like the leader of the Proud Boys, Enrique, Enrique Terrio. Terrio, along with other Proud Boys, has been charged with multiple crimes concerning the attack on January 6th, including seditious conspiracy. During the attack, Terrio sent a message to other Proud Boys claiming, we did that. Okay, not the best idea to claim credit for violent sedition while it's happening. But to be fair, they're not called the smart boys. (laughs) The committee. (laughs) Ooh, my darling. The committee made clear that the ex-president was well aware that he had lost. Cassidy Hutchinson put it in plain terms. He had said something to the effect of, I don't want people to know we lost, Mark. This is embarrassing. No, losing isn't embarrassing. You know what's embarrassing? That you were ever our president, you traitorous dingleberry. (laughs) Now, great image. Can I see? Paint the picture. Oh, my God. The committee recounted that the ex-president lost 61 court cases where he tried and failed to prove there was voter fraud, then showed testimony from former White House figures saying 
He should have respected those rulings, including his daughter, Ivanka, who I will remind you was a White House staffer. Never forget how crazy that place was. Jim? Ivanka, do you, do you believe the president's obligated to abide by the rulings of the courts? I do. Ouch. Not the I do he was hoping for from Ivanka. Now, remember, the ex-president and his allies' continuing excuse, the thing they've said a million times, that this wasn't planned. It was just a spontaneous outburst of coordinated violence. Well, check out this text from an organizer of the January 6th riot. We obtained a text message that one rally organizer sent on January 4th. In part, it reads that, quote, POTUS is going to have us march there, slash the Capitol, and POTUS is going to just call for it unexpectedly. Did you notice that? Unexpectedly? Buddy, the quotes don't make it less illegal. <laughs> I like to see this guy get pulled over. Officer, I'm not drunk. I am heavily inebriated <laughs> because my wife took the children and the house because of my serious drinking problem. <laughs> Committee had all sorts of new damning details. Congressman Adam Schiff showed Secret Service messages demonstrating that agents were aware of armed supporters of the ex-president gathering outside the metal detectors. By 9.09 that morning, the Secret Service could also see that many rally-goers were assembled outside the security perimeter. One agent emailed, possibly because they have stuff that couldn't come through, would probably be an issue with this crowd. Just a thought. Okay. But if it's an imminent threat, why are you putting it in an email? <laughs> to a White House mail list, subject line, no biggie. Hey, y'all, just want to ping you, uh, Ray, outbreak of civil war. Let's pencil a meeting on the calendar. No worries, if not, thanks, gotta go, being trampled. <laughs> now, the White House knew just how bad this was gonna get. In the lead-up, advisor Jason Miller emailed the former president's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, a link to a page that was blatantly planning violence. The linked webpage had comments about the joint session of Congress on January 6th. Take a look at some of those comments. Gallows don't require electricity. If the filthy commie maggots try to push their fraud through, there will be hell to pay. Okay, that is terrifying. But we do have a new nickname for the former president. Hell to pay. <laughs> We have to take a quick break here, but don't go away, because when we come back, I'll be right here with the exciting conclusion of tonight's monologue. Stick around. Hey, everyone, it's David Duchovny. Do you ever feel like a failure? Trust me, I get it. Hell, I've spent my whole life, almost, feeling like a failure. It's appropriate, though, because on Fail Better, my new podcast with Lemonada Media, exploring the world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives, is the whole point. Each week, I'll chat with artists, athletes, actors, and experts about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, I hope we can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure 
and Fail Better Together. Fail Better is out on May 7th, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to tonight's monologue, Already in Progress. Perhaps the most shocking new revelation from today's January 6th hearing was that for the first time, we saw harrowing footage of what was happening with our congressional leaders as they sheltered in place during the riot. Here's documentary footage in which we see Chuck Schumer taking charge. I'm going to call up the effing secretary of DOD. You tell him, Chuck! <laughs> Hello? <laughs> Mr. Secretary of DOD, this is MFing Senator Charles Schumer, and I am, in a word, P.O.'d. You tell POTUS that Chuck Schumer is DTF, doing talking firmly. We saw more footage from the room where the Speaker of the House and others were taking shelter during the siege. They're breaking windows and going in, uh, uh, obviously ransacking our offices and all the rest of that. That's nothing. The, uh, the concern we have about uh, personal harm, safety. personal safety is it just transcends everything. I got to say, this footage reveals a superhuman level of composure by the speaker. I guess it's true what they say. Behind every successful man is Nancy Pelosi saying, Chuck, please, I'll handle this. <laughs> Even... You got it. Did you see any of it? You got it. I didn't see it. She was amazing. Wow. wow. She was extraordinary. You could cut a diamond. Wow. Even in the midst of the violent siege, they're all fighting for their lives. There was bipartisan agreement that they were there for a bigger purpose, as Pelosi describes a conversation she had with Mitch McConnell. We talked to Mitch about it earlier. He, uh, he's not in the room right now, but he was with us earlier uh, and said, you know, we want to expedite this and hopefully they could confine it to just one complaint, Arizona, and then we could vote and, and it would be, you know, then just move forward with the rest of the state. Can you imagine how brave it is to decide to get back to work while your office is full of people who want to kill you? I won't come to work if they don't have the coffee I like. <laughs> If the Ed Sullivan Theater were full of rioters, I would quit and open a crab shack wherever weed is legal. But... South Carolina, no. Not in South Carolina. But Pelosi was... She was also aware of the obstacles to getting back to the certification, including the fact that rioters had defecated in the chambers. We're getting a counterpoint that is... It could take time uh, to clean up the poo-poo that they're making all over the... Literally and figuratively in the Capitol, and that uh, it may take days to get back. Okay, three things. One, it is moving to watch Nancy Pelosi have the guts and single-minded focus to make sure that the will of the people was heard and democracy preserved. Two, it is heartbreaking to revisit the destruction and the violence, both figurative and literal, to our country's democracy. Three, it is delightful to hear Nancy Pelosi say poo-poo. <laughs> Not worth it. <laughs> Not worth it, but delightful. And you gotta get your joys where you can these days. <laughs> I have just one, one quibble with Nancy. She said it was gonna take days to clean up. Nancy, it's been almost two years, and the poo-poo still won't accept that he lost the election. <laughs> Dingle. Dingleberry. That's a, that's a double. <laughs> then, as promised, Liz Cheney made the historic announcement. 
This afternoon, I am offering this resolution that the committee direct the chairman to issue a subpoena for relevant documents and testimony under oath from Donald John Trump in connection with the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. There it is. That's it. Here we go. Here we go. Unprecedented. Unprecedented. Absolutely necessary and unprecedented. They had to do it. They had to do it for the people. Of course, it's never going to happen. The former president doesn't want the opportunity to defend himself on national television. I mean, even if he is the only person who could get up there and set the record straight and stick it to Liz Cheney and Adam Schiff and prove this whole thing is a witch hunt, I mean, it would be watched by too many people on the biggest stage in the world. I mean, he doesn't want to be the center of attention. He'd, he'd get the highest TV ratings in history, but he doesn't want to go up there and yell to the committee, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. You also can't handle Truth Social, which is why no one is signing up, right? <laughs> here's, here's how the vote went down. Ms. Cheney. Aye. Ms. Lofgren. Aye. Mr. Schiff. Aye. Mr. Aguilar. Aye. Mrs. Murphy. Aye. Mr. Raskin. Aye. Mrs. Luria. Aye. Mr. Kinzinger. Kinzinger, aye. Mr. Chairman. Aye. Audience. We got a great show for you tonight. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. My first guest is an Emmy Award-winning actor you know from Succession, The Trial of the Chicago 7, and The Big Short. He now stars in Armageddon Time. Look at you. The young man. First day of the rest of your life. You look absolutely gorgeous. I look like a total idiot. No, you don't. I can't even have a normal knapsack. Normal uh, knapsack? Why would you want a normal knapsack when you can have this? This, this is an attache case. This is class A1. This, this says, I am ready to work. I come as a student. You just want me to be like you. What? You just want me to be like you. No. No, big boy. I want you to be a whole lot better than me. That's what I want. Please welcome Jeremy Strong. Nice to see you. Nice, nice to, to see, see you. you. I like the uh, I like the autumnal colors. Thank, Thank you for you. matching the moment. Thanks, man. Yeah. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's it's an honor to be here. Oh, it's an honor to have you. I've, I'm a longtime fan, and I know you don't do this stuff that often. Have you done a late night talk show before? I've never done one of these. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I actually, well, I mean, you're brilliant, and and um, and I love this film so much that I felt compelled to overcome my resistance and and fear of doing these things. Mm -hmm. um, You'll be glad you did. These are lovely people. Yeah, I no, I can tell. Especially, especially, 
It also helps if you call them lovely people. They love that right. stuff. Okay. Well, what, let's talk about that for just a second, because it is part of uh, uh, the job. A lot of fantastic actors sort of famously don't like this part of it. Like, De Niro is sort of famously difficult interview, because he just he doesn't have anything against it. He just particularly want to be there. Absent the character, here's the big question. Who is Jeremy Strong? That is the question, right? Right. Who do you present? And, and who is talk show Jeremy Strong? And I haven't done a lot of work on that character, so I don't feel like I can confidently play talk show Jeremy Strong. I, I know the feeling, because until this show, I was always in character in everything I ever did, and I had to come here and be talk show Stephen Colbert. Right. It took well, me months to pretty, figure it out. You've done pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Nice of you to say. You know, well, we don't have months right the, now. I, I think the truth is, in a way, honestly, the feeling sometimes is what can you possibly add to the work? Because what you want is for all of yourself to be in the work and to sort of disappear into it. So, sure. So that's there. And then, you know, what, what can you add to it? I'm not sure. I want to ask you about the work itself then, which is how do you... This is, a, this is also part of a broad question, is that your job is an actor. Okay, what is that job in your opinion? <laughs> is that too broad of a question? Do you want me to narrow no, that down? No, it's a great question. I mean, I guess I'd, if I had one word, it would maybe be a vessel. You're a vessel for storytelling. Um, but it's, it's really a mystery to me what it, what it is and how it works. And, yeah. and I think kind of protecting that mystery is important too. I had, a, I, had a, I had a teacher uh, called Frank Galati, who's a director I know also. Frank Galati. You know Frank? Yeah, I went to school at Steppenwolf in Chicago. And oh, Frank well, I went to Northwestern. He was one of, my, one of my professors Brilliant there. Brilliant director. He, fantastic guy, very influential to me. And one, one day in class, he, was, he said this thing. He was being very nice. You know, we were just students at the time. And he goes, those of us in the theater, um, he said, complimenting us, because those of us in the theater, we sometimes laugh at the people who come backstage and say, how do you remember all those lines? And then he said, but how do you? Who are you that you can do that? And who do you have to become to memorize two hours of something and then go on stage and be okay with people watching you do that thing on stage and, and somehow both be aware of them and not be aware of them at the same time and allow yourself to be beautiful while you do it? Well, I would say as beautiful, but also as fallible and as flawed. I mean, But the flaws are beautiful too. Yes, I agree. The idea. I agree. However you're portraying on stage, there's a beauty there. Beauty doesn't mean good. Right. I mean, you know, I think that's one of the virtues of this, of this film, this James Gray movie, because it's a very personal movie. Um, and it sort of speaks to that dictum that the most personal is the most universal. But James was really interested in an unvarnished look at, you know, an, an examination of this family, sort of, as he says, warts and all. This is... This is... It's his story, essentially. It's his story. It couldn't be more personal. I mean, it's essentially an autobiographical story. But tell the people, if you don't mind, a, a yeah. thumbnail. It's, um, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's sort of both the origin story of, of, uh, of, of an artist and the origin story of our country, where we are now in, in 2022. It's, um, it's set in Queens in 1980, and it's a story about a family and these sort of seismic changes happening in the year of this boy's life in this family against the backdrop of seismic changes that are happening in the country, Reagan's election, and this moment of a sort of inflection point in our history um, when sort of the market as God sort of took over from... I watched the movie last night 
only for the second time. And I think it's also a movie about integrity and the difficulty of living with integrity and, and sometimes our failure to make choices, to make the right choices, choosing social acceptance over courage. Um, there's some things in the film that if, if you see it, I, I sort of don't want to give too much away, but when, they, when, when they you see, see it, when they see it. <laughs> It's a beautiful film um, uh, that, that sort of, uh, yeah, these characters are, are, are tested in a way. Uh, their integrity is, is tested. You, you, you were playing his father, essentially, a character based on yeah. his father. Yeah. What was that like to portray someone that is so important to the director? How did you, could you use, did you ask him, like, tell me who, give me my backstory? Yeah, I mean, I think in a way he was reluctant. He's a, he's a, Brilliant director, I love all of his movies. This is, uh, you know, he was reluctant to, I think, share too much because he didn't want Annie Hathaway and I to play, sort of, to do impersonations of his parents, fair enough. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but your task as the actor really is to really, I think, internalize, understand and internalize and capture the essence of who a character is. And so I had to, I enlisted spies and I interrogated his family and... Did you... I understand that you asked him the Proust questionnaire. Yes. And the Proust questionnaire <laughs> is a, a famous series of questions that, uh, uh, that Proust came up with to sort of plumb, plumb the depths of someone. Well, you know, and it kind of works. Yeah. You know, if you answer all these questions, I forget how many there are, but a few dozen, mm -hmm. it gives you a kind of composite picture of a, of a person and their worldview. Could I uh, ask you some of the Proust questionnaire questions? Sure, I'm... Uh, yeah, sure. We haven't planned... <laughs> we haven't, uh... We do this thing on the show called the Colbert Questionnaire, which is sort of based on the Proust Questionnaire. Let's do it. No, that's 15 questions, and okay. we're not gonna ask that one. I'm gonna ask you actual Proust Questionnaire we questions. We haven't planned here. this, so okay. these answers may or All right. may not be... What is your idea of perfect happiness? Uh... I would say... sleeping in... And being woken up by my three little girls, uh, yeah, in bed. And maybe they bring me coffee. What is your current... That sounds... Classic. Pretty good, right? Quality answer. <laughs> what is your current state of mind? Agitated with a chance of calm. <laughs> what is yours? Uh, pleasure with uh, anxiety of achievement. Yeah. What is your most treasured possession? Uh, maybe, um, maybe this bracelet, actually, which is sort of a cuff that has my children... Uh... Their names on it? Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. If you were to die and come back as a person or thing... Yes, this is what the one it, I've actually thought about this. What would it be? Answer. But I was torn between a hummingbird... Why a, a hummingbird? ...and a moat of dust in an old bookstore. <laughs> do you, do you, you don't have to, because I, I, I suppose, I like, both? a Zen Cohen, you don't want to explicate it, but, but what are the, what is, what's the attractiveness of both of those? Well, have you ever seen a hummingbird? Yes, I have. I mean, they're astonishing, right? Yes, they're, they are. They're, they're astonishing. They're sort of like quicksilver. They, they, their hearts beat like 200. Their hearts beat like yeah. a 1,000 times yeah. per second. So, yeah. so who wouldn't want to be a hummingbird, I think? And, and, uh, <laughs> uh, 
And, and then, I, you know, I love the smell of, a, of an old used bookstore. So sure. a mode of dust in a bookstore sounds like a good life to me. <laughs> what about you? Have you? What? What would you be? Uh, if I Am could, I be a, to if I could be a person you? or a thing? Yeah, if you could come back as a person or a thing. A person. All right, the, we, character we got, we got... I, the character I played in the film, his, his answer when I got a, mic, uh, a tape recorder in front of him was a rock. The character? He said a rock? The person it's based on. He said a rock. A rock? Yeah. Wow. Sure. So. <laughs> um, I'm contractually obligated to ask you about succession. Okay. Okay. Um, I've asked this. You don't have to applaud my questions. Okay. <laughs> I've asked this of your co-stars. I'm going to ask you. Uh, beloved shows, I think, match the moment. What moment is succession matching? Uh, I don't think it's a... Gr I mean, it's not a, necessarily a happy answer. I think... True um, answers often aren't. It matches, I've, I would say, a darkening uh, in our society in a lot of ways. I mean, it's a show about a kind of malignancy at the heart of late-stage capitalism and what happens when that malignancy, you know, familial trauma becoming societal trauma. I mean, this is a family that's at the heart of the media industrial complex and in a way when there's toxicity or damage in, in that family, that's getting pumped out into the groundwater that we're all drinking from. And, I think the show is looking at that and taking a hard, satirical look at that, but, but, um, but is an indictment of, of that in a lot of ways. How do you think we um, uh, titrate that poison? Like, how do, how do we, how do, what do you do with a, a poisoned atmosphere like that? Well, that we all breathe in without even knowing. You come up here every night and speak the truth. Uh, jokes. Jokes. Well, that we mean. Jokes, that we but, mean. you know, jet. Jesse Armstrong, who's the brilliant writer of Succession, he said something that Emily Dickinson had written, which was that tell the truth, but tell it slant. And that's jokes. Mm -hmm. um, so so it's, it's not dissimilar. I don't know. I mean, I think you just try and put some light into the world as much as you, as much as you can. Can I ask you one more question? Sure. I want to ask you a question about some of the greatest actors that I've always admired in, in, in my little, my brief acting career before I did this, you, you being one of the actors I admire, are people who stay in character all the time when they're shooting or be between shots. I'm curious, you know, people, people admire it and people, things like, oh, well, De Niro does it or Dustin Hoffman does it or something like that. What does it do for you? I'm just curious because they've got like what Olivier famously said sure. to uh, uh, Hoffman. Sure. Why not just act it, boy? What does it do for you? I'm just curious. What's the value of that for you? You know, I don't even know that staying in character is, is a way of describing what it is. If anything, I, I'd say it's just sort of about uh, concentration. And, mm. and um, you know, I guess if I have any w way of working at all, it's kind of the whatever it takes method. Uh, and, and, and you never know what it's going to take. And, and, but for me, it always requires, I think, a, a certain um, quality of attention, which is more about negative space and sort of making yourself a blank slate than it is about trying to 
be something. Um, you know, Tony Hopkins is in Armageddon Time. Oh my God! And uh, to be able to do scenes with Anthony. And that Hopkins. was just a dream. You know, he he. I was thinking about him. He's the most wonderful man, the most generous-hearted, illuminated being. The, one of my favorite authors was a writer named James Salter, who died a few years ago. And the Washington Post said of him once that when he wants to, he can break your heart with a sentence. And, and Anthony Hopkins can, can do that and does that in this film. Did you work with him or met him before? No, but of course he's a hero of mine. And sure. Yeah. I, I, I interviewed him once and I met him once briefly. And he t told just instantly, like so kind, told me these fantastic stories about Catherine Hepburn and Peter O'Toole. Oh, he's got great stories. He has yes. A, he has a prodigious memory. He's very playful. You know, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to learn from him. And a lot to learn from you. Jeremy, thank you, thank you so thank much you. for being here. This has been The Late Show Poncho with Stephen Colbert. If you're enjoying The Late Show Pod Show, leave us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Watch The Late Show with Stephen Colbert weeknights at 11.35, 10.35 Central on CBS and Paramount+. Plus. And for more exclusive Late Show content, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Late Show on YouTube.